Hey there, it's me, Malika. Today, I'm handing over the microphone to my Al Jazeera colleague. Enjoy, and I'll be back soon. The 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, is leaving office. My campaign vigorously pursued every legal avenue to contest the election results. Now Congress has certified the results. A new administration will be inaugurated on January 20th. It's a seat of power he held for only one term and relinquished with such reluctance that it spawned the first assault on the U.S. Capitol building since the early 19th century. Trump leaves behind a deeply divided country, trade wars, strained relations with allies, a battered image abroad, and plenty of grist for the mills of America's critics. But he didn't come to power in a vacuum. Deepening wealth inequality, growing job insecurity, tensions between Washington and Beijing, these things didn't start on Trump's watch. But he leveraged them to win over voters by promising to shake up the status quo. The United States and the world were certainly shaken. The president is fundamentally shifting alliances around the world. The United States now joins just two other countries not part of the accord, Nicaragua and Syria. And so far, no other country has suggested it will pull out of Paris too. Countries on six continents are questioning President Trump's decision. World leaders have been expressing their opposition to Trump's highly controversial immigration restrictions. And now some of America's closest allies not holding back. As we turn the page to a new chapter in American history, what is Trump's legacy at home and abroad? And how will it influence the policies and priorities of the incoming president, Joe Biden? We've got a lot of questions, and our listeners sent in some more as well. So here's a roundup of Al Jazeera experts to help answer them. Asia business editor Azar Sukri, U.S. political editor Steve Shigaris, and in a little while, senior international correspondent Huda Abdelhamid. I'm Patricia Sabga, and this is The Take. The storming of Capitol Hill by pro-Trump supporters was interpreted by some as another nail in the coffin of U.S. democracy. Some called it the death of American exceptionalism, and really a harbinger of what could be more political violence to come. But others had a, a really different take on it. They saw it as a test that only served to reaffirm the resilience of U.S. democratic institutions. So, Steve, let's start with you. Do you take the optimist view or the pessimist view? I don't want to weasel out of that question, but I do think I take both views, and I'll just explain why. So, in terms of optimism, I do think that history is going to look back at this period from Election Day through Inauguration and really marvel at the strength, the underpinnings of democracy. Look, there were efforts by this President Trump, by his supporters, by people that he had paid to try to help overturn election results in states across the country. And whether it was judges that were appointed by Donald Trump, whether it were Republican elected officials standing up to, the, to President Trump and his efforts to overturn the election, to Republicans even in Washington, some of whom said, look, we've had enough of this. There's a process. There's a constitutional process to count the votes. The Constitution worked. The election worked. Donald Trump was unable to change that. And I think even with what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, 
democracy worked. Now, in terms of the pessimistic side, look, this is a country that is extremely polarized politically. I think what happened on January 6th was an extreme outburst of that polarization. And this has been intensifying for years, if not decades. And some would say exponentially it's intensified in the last four or five years under Trump. So the question is, is how does the United States repair this polarization? And so, you know, it's going to be up to Joe Biden to, he's been expressing unity. He's speaking in a way that is completely different than Donald Trump has over the last four years as president. But he also needs to remember that Donald Trump was a product, in a sense, of eight years of George Bush, eight years of Barack Obama. And if Joe Biden speaks in the ways that his predecessors did, uh, then he could be exacerbating some of these, some of this polarization as well. He needs to figure out how to bridge the divide between rich and the less wealthy, between rural and suburban and urban voters, between young and old voters. These are uh, issues that were happening before Trump and just blew up under Trump. And that's a lot for Joe Biden to try to fix. But it seems like he's going to give it the old college try. We'll see what happens. There's undoubtedly a challenge that lies ahead. But the key thing about that siege, it wasn't just just a siege. It was a violent siege. And you live in Washington. You've got the view. You're in the trenches there right now. The security around the inauguration is very tight. And really, is it over the top? Or is this what's required now? And what does it say about the prospect for more political violence in this country? Well, that's a, a very good question. So it, it, it definitely is a, a hyper reaction to what happened on January 6th. Now, whether it's a harbinger uh, of things to come in Washington, I don't know the answer to that question. But one thing was certain, January 6th did expose some significant security problems at the U.S. Capitol. Members of Congress have always wanted the U.S. Capitol to be a place, it's the people's house. They wanted to have some sort of sense of openness. It's one of the only places that's not totally fenced in and totally shut down by security. I think that's going to be one of the biggest changes moving forward is there is no safety anymore. And we've seen that because of the reaction of these people who stormed uh, the Capitol. Whether this means that we're in for uh, nonstop violence in Washington moving forward, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay, Steve, you're giving us the view from D.C. Azar, you're in Kuala Lumpur. You've got the view from abroad. How is American exceptionalism looking from where you're sitting right now? This whole idea of American exceptionalism probably had its peak somewhere in the middle of the 20th century, to be perfectly honest. How important is America on the world stage it's the big thousand pound gorilla. There's no question about it. You can't diminish it. But to your question, American exceptionalism in, in the global mindset, does it loom as large as it once did? No, it doesn't. And I think uh, certainly during the Trump term, the Trump years, that has been eroded even further. Whatever m sort of moral leadership role that America had at one time has been dealt a major blow, at least looking at it from overseas. The American withdrawal is getting more bad reviews around the world. German Chancellor Angela Merkel called it extremely regrettable. 
Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called it disheartening. And the Vatican went further, saying Mr. Trump's decision was a disaster for everyone. So you're talking about moral leadership, but you also mentioned it in terms of, of economics and China and trading partners. Now, Trump did pursue some policies that even some of his critics agreed with. And among the most consequential was punishing China economically over trade practices that many believe are unfair. And more recently, he took Beijing to task over his treatment of Uyghur Muslims and also threatening civil liberties in Hong Kong. China raided our factories, offshored our jobs, gutted our industries, stole our intellectual property. China has also unlawfully claimed territory in the Pacific Ocean, threatening freedom of navigation and international trade. And they broke their word to the world on ensuring the autonomy of Hong Kong. Now, when you take a look against other administrations, now China did grow very assertive during the Obama administration, and some would even say brazenly so. So, Azar, from where you're sitting, was Trump justified in taking a more confrontational stance toward Beijing? And if so, what did he achieve? Okay, let me preface everything that I'm going to say with, I'm not justifying China, China's actions, okay? They, have they dealt in corporate espionage? Yes. Have they had human rights violations? Yes. Have they had dodgy trade practices? Absolutely. And guess what? Japan did most of those things in, in the 1950s through to the 1980s. That was how Japan got as big as it did. But so let's rewind a little bit. Look, in the 1980s, as China was opening up to the world, the Western strategy or hope, shall we say, was that if we bring China into the global trading structures and everything that, that we're building, then eventually they're going to be forced to liberalize politically as well. Guess what? That didn't work. Along comes Donald Trump and says, we're going to, we're going to bash them into the ground. We're, we're not going to stand for China taking away all our jobs and everything else. And we're going to ostracize them. We're going to contain China. That strategy hasn't worked either, quite clearly. When you look at has China been uh, hugely damaged by the trade war? Not really. It's found alternatives. Arguably, the US has done more damage to itself during that time. But Steve, you're in Washington and all politics are local. How does Biden de-escalate this confrontational stance that, that Trump has taken toward China. How does he do that without being seen as going soft on Xi Jinping? That's a very good question, considering this America first idea that Trump put forth is supported by a significant number of Americans. It was an issue during the campaign where Trump hit Biden over the head on, he's going to be soft on China, he's going to be soft on trade. And Biden needs to figure out a way to deal with China in a way that does not make it appear like we're backing off what we've been doing the last four years. Now, you may not agree with exactly what Donald Trump was doing, but there are, as I said, people who do agree with the America first idea. So there's got to be a way where you get to say, look, what we're doing is in America's interests, but it is also a different path 
forward in terms of dealing with China. That's a needle he has to thread. He's got to figure out, one, what that is, what, what that policy is, but secondly, how to sell it to the American people in a way where people don't basically revolt with uh, what he's trying to do moving forward. When you look at how difficult that path will be to tread, could China prove to be Biden's Achilles heel? Um, okay, okay. So can I just say that I, I think if we continue to look at China as this existential threat that is out to take the food off of our tables, I think you are going to continuously get into this this cycle, how do you deal with China? And, and I don't think that goes anywhere. What it needs is a fundamental understanding, I think, of where China comes from. A, a lot of what kind of informs the Communist Party today in 2021 is kind of what has informed China for centuries. So everything that China does, I think, if you view it from a defensive point of view, rather than an offensive point of view, that opens up a whole new range of possibilities of that question of how to deal with China. But the problem with that, though, I think, is that it's not framed that way by American politicians, right? It is framed as a black and white issue. And Americans who generally do not pay very close attention to foreign policy are just listening to what their leaders and, and their politicians are saying about this. And so you asked Patty, if this will be Biden's Achilles heel, look, I think that he's got, he has a lot of issues that he has to solve in the next four years. If China be, becomes the bogeyman for um, economic problems this country faces, if Republicans use China as a cudgel against Biden, yes, it could very well be his political Achilles heel. However, there are a lot of other issues, I think, that are, are going to be uh, in, 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 at the forefront for Americans as they choose uh, their next leader in four years, as they choose uh, their legislature in 2022. And I'm not sure that China, even though it is a huge deal, is going to be at the forefront of that, at least in the short term. Now, one thing that both of you mentioned as we're having this discussion about China is the need to find a third way, the need to re-engage in a more positive fashion with traditional allies of the United States. This brings up another hallmark of Trump's presidency and the, and the legacy that he left. He showed contempt for multilateral agreements and institutions throughout his presidency. He withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. He withdrew the U.S. from the WHO during a pandemic. He railed against the NATO alliance in demanding European members spend more on defense. And of course, um, he very rarely has a kind word to say about the United Nations. So, Steve, let's start with the WHO. We are in a pandemic, after all. How easy will it be for Biden to wind back the clock on Trump's legacy there? I don't think it'll be that difficult in the sense that Trump, it, 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 you know, said that he wanted to withdraw from the WHO. That would have taken effect in about six months. So Biden can reverse that pretty quickly. The question is, is this just an, a temporary fix? There's just so much uncertainty as to what the U.S. is going to be as a world player moving forward, because one, 
there's a sense that Biden is going to be a, a basically a lame duck president from the time he comes in. He's only going to be uh, in office for four years. So who comes after uh, Biden? Is it another Republican in the Trump mold? Is it another Republican in the traditional Republican mold? Or is it another Democrat who um, follows Obama and Biden or goes in a different direction? Again, there's so much uncertainty. So while he may be able to repair um, these relationships in the short term, whether it's WHO or NATO, I still think that this is all viewed as temporary by the international community. And there's going to be a lot of sort of breath holding to see what the United States looks like in four years. I definitely want to take a closer look at NATO as well. So Azar, from, from where you're sitting, you cover Europe as well. How much damage has Trump done to the NATO alliance? And what can Biden do to re- build it? And especially, what does that mean for the U.S. and how it meets potential challenges, not only from China, but really from Russia as well? So much damage has been done to not just NATO, to so many international organizations by Trump's pulling away from the international sphere. I guess the question that a lot of these countries are going to have to ask is, can we live without the US in in, in many ways? In some cases, the answer has been yes. Uh, when you look at what one of the other actions that, that Trump did, was, which was to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example, the US pulled out. Very quickly, they regrouped and they formed a, a new trade deal in almost record time without the United States. So is NATO going to survive the Trump years? I think under under Joe Biden, I think Joe Biden is going to re-engage with a lot of these multilateral organizations. I think that's, that much is pretty clear. We're joined now by senior international correspondent Hoda Abdelhamid. She's in Washington, D.C. to cover Biden's inauguration, and she's joining us in between live shots on Al Jazeera English. Hoda, while we've got you for this very, very brief window, we're talking about the Middle East, where you have done extensive reporting. Now, Trump unilaterally withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal with world powers. And then, of course, he embarked on this maximum pressure campaign of sanctions designed to squeeze Tehran economically back to the negotiating table. Clearly, that hasn't worked, and in some respects, it backfired. In fact, Iran has started enriching uranium again. Tensions between Iran and the West hitting new highs today. Iran says it will start to enrich uranium up to 20% and will do so as soon as possible. Iran's announcement this morning is a major breach of the Iran nuclear deal. This latest move by Iran could hamper a bid by Biden to re-enter the agreement. But the Middle East was also where Trump scored what is arguably his signature foreign policy achievement, and that would be the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, all normalizing relations with Israel on Trump's watch. So Hoda, did Trump leave the Middle East a more or less secure place? That's a very difficult question. I think he left the Middle East probably a more divided place. His Iran policy has pleased some parts of the Middle East and the other part wasn't very happy about it, would have rather had some sort of 
more um, stable relationship, I would say, with uh, Iran. You'd have some countries that find themselves caught in the middle, whether to follow the line coming out from uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, Israel, or to follow its own uh, uh, policy and its own uh, relationship with Iran. So that's one issue. On the other hand, you also have... Um, yes, he brought about normalizations of relations with, um, you know, between some countries and Israel, but the Palestinian problem uh, is still there. He hasn't addressed it at all. And if anything, Palestinians have lost a lot uh, under Trump and were also abandoned by what they would see being abandoned by even more Arab countries. So they are in a very difficult situation. And if you speak to anyone, uh, you know, over there in the West Bank or in Gaza, they'll tell you they don't know how they will ever get a state at this stage. So I guess it's a mixed bag, really, what he left behind. So when you take a look at the Palestinian issue specifically, he did try to address it. He just didn't address it successfully or with a peace plan that had any credibility with the Palestinian people. But the question now is, How does Biden undo that damage? Of course, the U.S. has often suffered from a credibility problem with the Palestinians and being a fair and neutral party in that. Where do you see this landing on Biden's agenda and can he undo the damage? It will be very difficult for him to undo the damage. I mean, you know, the... uh is he going to be able to all of a sudden say, no, Jerusalem is not anymore the the, uh, the capital of Israel? He can't do that. Um, if he's going to be able to say, give back the Golan Heights, they remain a uh, occupied land that is disputed between Syria and Israel, he can't say that. So it's very difficult him, for him to undo anything. What he can give the Palestinians is not very clear. I don't think it's his priorities right now. I think when he comes, you know, the day after he becomes president, his priorities are very domestic between the pandemic and all these divisions in the country. So what they will get out of it, I don't think they expect anything at this stage. Um, any Palestinian would tell you that they were always let down by the any U.S. administration and just basically Trump was the, the nail in the coffin, may I say, for lack of better words. So he has promised to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. The only way out of this crisis is through diplomacy. Clear-eyed, hard-nosed diplomacy grounded in a strategy. Of course, we've only seen the sanctions campaign designed to squeeze Iran's economy has only gotten stronger and intensified more as as Trump's time in office has come to a close. Many people thought that was designed to really tie Biden's hands and make it much more difficult for him to reenter the Iran nuclear deal. But there's also the other consideration as well, and that is Saudi Arabia. So tell me about that balancing act. How does Biden get back into the Iran nuclear deal and how does he do that without alienating Saudi Arabia? Well, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Biden will be very different from the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Trump. I mean, Trump was, his first overseas visit was to Saudi Arabia, which was signaling quite, you know, a message. 
that's going to change. And I think the Saudis know that, other countries in the Gulf know that, and I think that's why probably the end of the blockade on Qatar was fast-tracked, because the Saudis realized that the Gulf needs to be at least show that it's reunited again, if it can have any kind of sway over uh, Joe Biden's policy when it comes to Iran. Um, so that's on one side. On the other hand, he has an Iran that will say, well, hold on, we already signed a deal. You you got out of the deal. Now you want to come in. So Iran will feel that it has more leverage when it comes to whatever next deal comes in. So it is a very difficult situation because Iranians will say, well, you know, you're here for four years. Who knows what was going to happen next? And they will change the cards on the table, especially that the sanctions have hurt them very badly and have hurt the Iranian people very badly. Steve, I really want to to get your take on this because when we're talking about getting back into the Iran nuclear deal, which is something that Biden says he will do, what kind of domestic room does he have to do this? I think more than people give it credit for. Again, I, I don't think that, that that Trump was able to turn that issue into something that the vast majority of Americans were. It, it just was not at the forefront of what people's sort of political thinking and, and how they chose their leaders. So I do think that Biden has some room to work there if he wants to go back in that direction. Uh, the interesting part of it is, though, is that Trump has, has become so pro-Israel, and it's a big issue among uh, Republicans who are very pro-Israel. I'm interested to see how all of this affects the relationship between the U.S. and Israel, mainly because Netanyahu and Biden are probably not uh, on the same level politically as Trump and Netanyahu uh, were. And so uh, all of this, I think, is all going to play into what likely to be a very interesting scene over the next six months. Again, how it trickles down to how American voters think of Biden or Trump or Republicans or Democrats, I'm not sure it's going to have that much of an effect, which does give Biden a little bit of wiggle room to work on this stuff. Now, Hoda, you were there in Washington and you have a front row seat to what's going on in terms of the security around the inauguration, these images that are going out to the world right now. Earlier, I had asked Steve and Azar about American exceptionalism and what the siege of, of Capitol Hill. Some people saw that as a giant blow to U.S. democracy and the death of American exceptionalism and a harbinger of more political violence to come. But others saw it as a, a test of America's democratic institutions that ultimately proved resilient. So from where you're sitting right now, do you take the optimist or the pessimist view? I take the optimist view in the sense that, I mean, throughout my career, when I've seen similar scenes like what happened at Capitol Hill, uh, then it was followed by much more civil unrest than what happened. It was nipped in the bud may I say, comparing to what could have happened or how it could have unraveled. So yes, there are strong institutions here that are holding the country together and that make America uh, America. Uh, that said, I think that the image of that mob entering Capitol Hill um, is one that 
you know, I, I was watching it uh, from Doha at the time. I was glued to the television. Everybody I knew around me uh, was glued to the television. And I think the one reaction was that, oh, so after all, America is just another country like the rest of us. And problems can happen there, too. It's not only us anymore. We can also point the finger at uh, the U.S. There was all these jokes saying that now, you know, many countries will issue statements saying that they were concerned about the situation in the U.S. As, you know, State Department always issues such statements. Jokes apart, uh, I think that image has harmed quite a bit, you know, the stance of the U.S. Uh, around the world and what it will be able to say or not say uh, to other governments in, who face similar issues. I really, really do want to bring it back home because, Steve, you've mentioned this a lot. Biden has expressed his desire to be the peacemaker, to heal a divided nation. But there's also a need to hold Trump to account for the siege on Capitol Hill. Now, the House of Representatives got things started by impeaching Trump for inciting an insurrection. But Steve, how quickly do you think the Senate is going to move forward with an impeachment trial? And what potential challenges would that present to Biden, especially during the first hundred days in office? I mean, those are the days when a new president wants to get a lot done and set the tone for the next four years. Well, I think listening to Biden since the election was called for him in November, there is a, a, a significant effort to not be consumed with Donald Trump. Most of the things that came out of Biden's mouth in the last couple of months were looking forward. And this is going to force him uh, and Democrats to continue to focus on Donald Trump for however many weeks a Senate trial is going to take. And look, it's not going to prevent Joe Biden from talking about other things and moving his policy ideas forward, except for the fact that the Senate may be consumed with just dealing with an impeachment trial and not dealing with uh, moving legislation through. But yeah, it's going to be the focus is going to continue to be on Donald Trump, which is exactly the opposite of what Joe Biden wants to do in his efforts to sort of heal what he sees as a giant rift in this country, a, a non-unified country, uh, to deal with um, you know foreign governments and and the world and project a different image uh, of the United States. When it's going to be very difficult to do when all the discussion is going to be on what happened January sixth, and uh, it's probably not something Biden is looking forward. So, Azar, one of Biden's big priorities is to rebuild the U.S. economy, to clean up the damage caused by the coronavirus pandemic. He needs policies passed to give a good kickstart to the U.S. economy and really start enacting so many of the ambitious goals in his Build Back Better blueprint for the U.S. economy. Yeah, like, I mean, it, inevitably, he's he is going to have an uphill struggle. In an ideal world, what does Biden need to do to bind the wounds of America? He needs to create a lot of jobs and he needs to throw trillions of dollars at it. The main thing he's going to have to do is push forward policies that not only create new jobs, but also go a long way towards mending the wounds that still exist in many parts of, of America that have lost out to globalization and automation. These are the things that brought Trump arguably to power in the first place. And so those structural issues are going to have to be addressed. And whether Biden is going to have the political room to do that 
That's the big question. Which leads us to where we are now and this moment of history. Do you think that right now, given those extraordinary events that we saw on Capitol Hill, a, a violent insurrection, do you think that now the country is primed to really move forward and propel into a new era? Let me put it this way. If not now, then never. Because you don't get opportunities like this to implement root and branch changes like this. Yes, the, the pandemic has been devastating to, to, for, well, everyone, more or less. But it also creates opportunities. And I think what you've touched on there is absolutely crucial. This is a once in several generations opportunity to implement the kinds of changes that arguably should have been done a long time ago. So, you know, whether politicians on both sides of the aisle in America grasp this opportunity and say, forget about fiscal conservativeness, forget about balancing the budget and everything for our generation. Let's just throw as much money as is needed to this problem. What about you, Hoda? As Azar said, these are not normal times. This is a primary moment for massive disruption. But do you see more Obama-era nostalgia and a rewinding of the clock? Or do you think that the United States is about to embark on a new and very different era? Well, I would hope it will embark on a new and very different era. I, I think it's very important for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to sort of have their own, if I dare to say, identity kind of thing to do, to, to try to distance themselves and to make the, to have their own footprint. Yeah, that's the impression I get. What about you, Steve? Do you see us going back to what was business as usual before Trump took office? Or do you think the United States is poised to take a bold new step and finally tackle those long festering issues? I suspect if you asked Biden, it would be a little bit of both. Look, he is an institutionalist at heart. He has been in Washington politics for almost five decades. And I think he looked at the last four years as chaos that was brought upon the city by Trump and Republicans. And he sees himself as somebody who can restore order to the institutions of, of Washington. But at the same time, and you've heard him say this, and part of this was the reason, one of the reasons he said he chose Kamala Harris as his running mate is an eye on the future and planting the seeds for changing politics moving forward. Again, given the current political situation in this country and the, the giant political chasm, and frankly, the pessimism that has just seeped into Americans' mindset, it's an unbelievable, perhaps impossible task for Joe Biden to tackle. But again, he's going to give it a try, and I think he's going to give it a try with the, the foundation of restoring order to the institutions that he knows and has worked in with an eye on the future. We'll have to see what happens after he takes the oath of office and where he kicks off his first 100 days. You've all been amazing. I know how busy you all are. Thank you so much for your time. That's The Take. And again, we were joined by Hoda Abdelhamid, Steve Shigaris, and Azar Sukri. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve with Dina Kesba, Malika Bilal, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walders, Nagin Oliai, 
and Alexandra Locke. Natalia Aldana is our show's engagement producer. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. And Stacey Samuel is the Takes executive producer. On Friday, we'll be back with an update on how the inauguration went. That'll be hosted by my colleague, Josh Rushing. Thank you for listening.